Welcome to this edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the JNNP podcast editor. Today's edition marks the first in a series of special podcasts marking the JNNP's centenary. Over the next 12 months, as part of our Vision 2020 series, we'll reflect on some of the most trailblazing publications, as well as on some of the key figures that have led to the journal's success and longevity. On today's podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Neil Quinn. Professor Quinn is Emeritus Professor of Clinical Neurology at University College London, Queen Square Institute of Neurology. He's an international leader in the area of movement disorders and has an exceptional scientific record, which includes over 570 publications, including many in the JNNP. Professor Quinn provides an updated commentary on his seminal 1989 publication in the January edition of the JNNP and is here to discuss multiple systems atrophy, the nature of the beast revisited with me today. So a very warm welcome to you, Professor Quinn, and many thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Um, well, let's get started. Um, I think, um, if I'm right, uh, Graham and Oppenheimer first coined the term uh, multiple systems atrophy. Your paper really provided a consolidation of the literature on what many thought to be multiple different diseases. Uh, what was it that motivated you to write this paper? Well, several things. First of all, I had at King's seen and followed many patients with Parkinsonism and obtaining autopsies in some of them. And I became aware of the many ways in which multiple system atrophy differed from PD and PSP in symptomatology and natural history. Secondly, as, as a lecturer, David Marsden gave me free reign to explore the topic of MSA. And thirdly, I was presented with carte blanche to write a substantial paper on a topic of my choice in the JNNP special supplement to Mark David Marsden's 10-year editorship. All contributors were told not to reveal to David that this supplement was being uh, assembled. And I spent some time being interrogated by him as to why my academic output had mysteriously fallen. The Nature of the Beast is, is for me far and away the best paper I ever wrote before or since. I think it's worth recalling that at that time, the World Wide Web was only born in 1991 and PubMed only started in 1996. So in those days, references were laboriously physically tracked down in libraries in the paper-based index medicus and papers written on a typewriter. I wouldn't say mine were the first MSA diagnostic criteria, but the forerunners were pretty basic. So mine were the first systematic and comprehensive criteria. David Hoppenheimer, who you mentioned, who coined the term in 69, was uncertain about the limits and extent of multiple system atrophy. He pondered whether or not it could include other neurodegenerative disorders, such as Friedrich's ataxia. And I guess I was the first to stress, particularly the sporadic nature of MSA, and thus to exclude subsequent deluge of familial scars and other genetic disorders. So on clinical grounds, I insisted on Scheidrager syndrome, sporadic OPCA and stritonigral degeneration being essentially manifestations of the same disease and excluding, importantly, Parkinson's disease with autonomic failure and scars, etc. And in the same year, 1989, this was underpinned by Pat Kahn and Lantos demonstrating for the first time, the presence of GCIs in all three MSA variants. People sometimes inappropriately used to use the term multi-system atrophy for MSA, and some even still do, 
But obviously, whilst MSA is one of many multi-system atrophies, it stands apart from the others as a discrete and recognizable entity. So it's important to use the full term multiple system atrophy specifically for MSA. The full name is, of course, a bit of a mouthful, but not as much as dentato rubro pallidolusian atrophy. On the other hand, l'atrophie multisystematisée, I've lectured in French, does not roll easily off the tongue, at least for Anglophones. Uh, you were one of the first to propose a diagnostic criteria for the condition and probably enshrined the term red flags into the neurologist's, or at least my, uh, lexicon. Uh, do you think your criteria have stood the test of time? First of all, a confession. I actually borrowed the term red flags after seeing it in a paper on MS, and I thought it was very useful. And it has proved a very useful diagnostic handle. In my original paper, I defined red flags as clinical features raising doubts about a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, which really is the main differential. But uh, subsequently, in the MSA consensus criteria, we used the term red flags to indicate features supporting a diagnosis of MSA. This is a subtle difference. And we introduced some additional non-supporting features. But on the whole, I do believe that my original criteria have largely stood the test of time. However, neither they nor the subsequent consensus criteria were perfect, obviously, and they are ripe for updating this year. I hope this will enable greater diagnostic accuracy and also, crucially, to permit earlier and ultimately preclinical diagnosis so that any disease-modifying treatment can be given the best chance to prevent or slow or halt the disease. Moving on from the, you know, 30 years ago, looking at today, the, the science today, particularly the molecular biology and, and genetics having greatly evolved. Now knowing what we know, do you think you would have made any changes or additions to what you wrote back then in 1989? Well, on the clinical side, looking back, I think originally insisting on a poor response to levodopa to qualify as MSAP was perhaps unwise because we know of many autopsy-proven cases that have had a good or sometimes even excellent response, although it usually wanes over time. Despite evidence that cognitive disturbance can occur in MSA, it's not common early on when one's trying to first make the diagnosis. It's strikingly more common in PSP and PD, but especially so when it's commonly associated with autonomic failure in dementia with Lewy bodies or Parkinson's disease dementia. And I think for this reason, I still think significant dementia should be an exclusion criterion for a diagnosis of MSA. As far as genetics are concerned, and I'm not an expert on genetics, the advances of mushrooms since my original paper uh, on the one hand, we've identified mutations causing many other diseases. However, apart from very rare exceptions, proven familial MSA remains vanishingly rare. And moreover, no relevant mutations have been identified, apart from two Japanese families with a recessive CoQ10 mutation. On the one hand, it's good for patients and their families to know that MSA can't be passed on. But on the other, if there were an identifiable causative mutation, it might have revealed an important etiological clue that could be exploited in treatment. However, we do know that MSA is an alpha-synucleinopathy, but not why it accumulates in the brain, and particularly in GCIs. 
Um, I think your um, paper has, both papers actually have some some quite nice cartoons in them. And one of the cartoons addresses this issue of, of lumping versus splitting in, uh, in neurological diseases. And uh, I suppose I want to ask, are you a lumper or a splitter in this regards, both with regards to maybe neurodegeneration at large, but in, in specifically MSA? Well, before I go on to that, I'll tell you why the cartoon was there. I thought it was a good idea to have a cartoon. And the Times newspaper cartoonist ran the cartoon gallery, which was one street away from Queen Square. And I had an idea for a cartoon. I took my rather pathetic drawing along to him. And uh, he said, well, tell me about this disease. And he said, oh, it doesn't sound very nice. And then he did a lovely cartoon and he put in a little thing, pick a name underneath, uh, which was great. And he did another one for me too. So that's the origin of that. And people always remember it. They say, oh, that's the paper with the cartoon. But I think it was very useful. Lumping versus splitting, as you know, is an age old issue in taxonomy and lumping gives does give a certain coherence as in MSA but it can also mask important differences which could be relevant. Why is MSA-C so different clinically from MSAP? And why is its relative prevalence so different in Japan as opposed to Western countries? Why does it always start after age 30? And why, unlike Parkinson's disease, does its incidence usually decline after age 60? In 30 years from now, we all hope to see cures, to stop or even reverse conditions like MSA. But in reality, how close do you think we are to these? Looking into the future, I think with the current pace of research progress in neurobiology, I think the long-term prospects for prevention or cure of many neurodegenerative diseases are good, and MSA has to be among them. I really hope that we will see amazing progress in the next two decades in not only MSA, obviously, but other neurodegenerative diseases. And I hope this, this happens. Finally, one of your mentors uh, was, as you mentioned, uh, David Marsden, such an influential figure, both in this and in uh, the previous century. David was also editor of the JNMP for much of the 1980s. And I just wonder um, if you could reflect on some of your memories of David as a clinician, as a scientist, and indeed as a friend. Yes, well, I mean, I could never have achieved the things that I've done, and especially my Beast paper, without the encouragement and support of, of David Marston. I worked for him at King's College Hospital in the Maudsley in my first ever neurology job in 1976, and I immediately got hooked by him on movement disorders, especially at the time on Parkinson's disease, as it was treatable. David was 38. He'd already held the established chair in neurology for six years. And I, 10 years younger, was a humble SHO. Four years later, I came back to King's uh, as a fellow. And as one of his fellows, I was really fortunate to work concurrently for two years with Tony Lang from Toronto and Jose Abeso from Pamplona, which was the best period of my professional life. In total, I worked with David for a total of 18 years, laterally at Queen Square. He was remarkable in so many ways. He was very charismatic and equally at home with neuropharmacology and neurophysiology, but also a superb cl clinical neurologist. He was very well organized, but even dictate first drafts of papers out of his head. In particular, he was a brilliant teacher and in his celebrated book rounds, he took the assembled registrars and fellows logically through his thought processes to teach them how to analyze history, 
symptoms and signs. As you know, his greatest legacies are many. His numerous fellows have gone on to become professors in many parts of the world. His founding with Stanley Farn of the Movement Disorder Society and the journal Movement Disorders, not forgetting his 1,368 publications. He was a complex character, in many ways very private, but also very sociable and driven, working hard and playing hard and fiercely supported of promising junior colleagues. I was very privileged to know him over so many years. Sadly, his life was cut short prematurely in 1998 at the age of 60. And last year, we celebrated his life and work in a symposium in London. Those who wish to read more about him, his definitive 25-page biological memoir, written by myself, Peter Jenner, and John Rothwell, is held at the Royal Society, of which he was a fellow. You know, what a great... Uh career David had and um, an inspiration to all of the neurologists in training listening uh, to this podcast. Well I want to conclude today's podcast and thank uh, Professor Quinn for joining me and giving such an excellent commentary on both the 1989 paper and indeed uh, an update on his thoughts in this area and I'd encourage you all to both read the current edition of his reflection on that paper and indeed the 1989 edition, which is available to download now on the JNNP website. Thank you and goodbye.